From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, real dialogue about mass shootings and their causes. We need to recognize that America has a gun epidemic going on right now. We might be coming up with different ways that we think we can stop it, but nobody on either side of this issue wants it to continue. We need to reach out to young people who are feeling ostracized before they reach out to hate groups or white supremacist groups to find a home. Go into a gun show, go to a gun store, and lie about your background to try to get a handgun? It's a misdemeanor, and it rarely ever gets prosecuted, largely because of volume and resources at the lower level. It is really important to acknowledge that mass shootings account for only 1% to 2% of all firearm deaths in this country. 60% of firearm deaths are suicide. We need to be talking about those. We want to begin with these words from Olivia Leon of Littleton. So I have a friend who was in the Aurora Theater when it was getting shot up. And there's details that they told me that I can only imagine what they had to go through. And it's sad because anyone could be a victim of these shootings. And like being in Colorado, we have a lot of them. And I see the signs everywhere, like the signs of people mourning. There's so much mourning here, and there's so much arguing at the same time. Oh, we should keep these guns. No, we shouldn't. And I really wish that we could just wave a magic wand and fix it all, but we can't. Well, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And indeed, after a mass shooting come the shoulds. The U.S. should pass gun control, improve its mental health system, arm good guys with guns, address extremism. We're going to grapple with these shoulds today and get people who view them differently to talk with each other. We've assembled Coloradans who've given this a lot of thought. We're going to include listeners' questions and observations about this moment in America as we go. Each of our guests is going to start by finishing this sentence. After the latest round of mass shootings, America should... Emmy Betts is an emergency physician at the CU School of Medicine, where her research focuses on preventing suicides by gun. So after this latest round of shootings, America should recognize there are no soundbite solutions to a very complex problem. We need to recognize the full spectrum of gun violence, including suicides and the daily violence that plagues many cities. And we need to be using a public health approach, meaning using data, looking at all different options, working together towards evidence-based solutions. George Brockler is the Republican district attorney for the 18th Judicial District, which includes Arapahoe County. He prosecuted the Aurora Theater shooter. And after the Columbine shootings, he prosecuted two men who sold guns to those shooters. After the latest round of mass shootings, I think America needs to continue to assess from a legal standpoint and others what works and what doesn't work in keeping firearms out of the wrong hands, the hands most likely to visit evil and mass murder on other people. Laura Carno is a gun rights activist from Elbert County, east of Denver. She heads FASTER, which trains teachers and other school staff to use guns. After the latest round of mass shootings, America should 
come together, both sides of the aisle, and acknowledge that nobody wants this to continue. We might be coming up with different methods, different beliefs, different ways that we think we can stop it, but nobody on either side of this issue wants it to continue. And so we should leave aside that rhetoric. And we need to look at the things that have been proven to stop this kind of violence. Rhonda Fields is a Democratic state senator from Aurora. She sponsored a ban on high-capacity gun magazines in 2013, part of a package of reforms approved by lawmakers. But she opposed a recent move to repeal the death penalty. Her son, Javad Marshall Fields, and his fiance were murdered in 2005. Their killers are on death row. After the latest rounds of mass shootings in America, I think that we need to recognize that America has a gun epidemic going on right now. I believe that there is this destruction as it relates to public places. Right now, a lot of folks don't feel comfortable being in theaters, going to church, going to a concert. Um, And if you do go to some of these public places, it's hardened which means you have to be patted down or someone's searching your bag to see if you're carrying a weapon. So I think that we have to move beyond what the right is saying or what the left is saying, but kind of look at what we can do with a holistic approach to move us forward and out of this dilemma that we're facing right now. And Mo Keller is Director of Advocacy for Mental Health Colorado, which works towards prevention and treatment of mental health and substance abuse disorders. She's a former Democratic state legislator from Wheat Ridge. After these most recent mass shootings, America should realize that we have a very complex societal problem. And the impact of mass shootings certainly devastate the families and they devastate that community where the shootings occur, but they also traumatize the entire country. Mass shootings create fear and anxiety and a sense of hopelessness in all of us, and so everyone's mental wellness is affected. I would like us to address gun violence by starting with civilizing the conversation. I think our elected officials have an obligation and leadership to bring civil discourse back into the public arena. Demonizing individuals who have a mental illness does not help. We have enough difficulty encouraging individuals, especially men, to access mental health care as it is. There are several common characteristics of mass shooters. Uh, They tend to be white males. They tend to be loners. They tend to believe they don't fit in. We need to reach out to young people who are feeling ostracized and provide them opportunities to have positive human relationships before they reach out to hate groups or white supremacist groups to find a home. All right, let's get this conversation going. Who's most eager to know more about someone else's should? Laura Carno. Yeah, I'd like to ask Senator Keller the mental health aspect when we look at so many of these, even if we just start with what we know in Colorado, the the Columbine killers, Mm -hmm. the theater killer, there are certain mental health issues. Where is that line where you say, Good question. you know, adjudicated mentally ill versus, right. yeah, what, help me understand from your... Well, that's partly my question, is that when you look at mental health conditions, it's all the way over from anxiety, which is the most common mental health condition that Americans have, mild to moderate depression, 
bipolar disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, panic attacks, uh, phobias of all kinds. Those are the majority by far of all individuals who have a mental health condition in our country, but they have no inclination towards violence whatsoever. When you get down to the, the small, it's actually 0.45% of all diagnoses of mental health conditions in the country are the psychoses, that's schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, sometimes uh, bipolar disorder in, in certain phases. And of that 0.45, uh, there's a subset of that that actually act out on violence against themselves, usually, or uh, entertain thoughts of uh, violence on others. What our issue is, is that that segment, that small segment, is the only segment that the press talks about. And it gives a false image to all of us as a whole because now we're facing even more difficulty of individuals who have mental health concerns or mental health conditions, if you will, accessing treatment because they're afraid of being lumped into that group. Laura, what are you getting at with your question? Like, I wonder fundamentally, what is it you're wondering about in this moment? How do we find these people um, before they do it? Because I'm all about prevention, even though I, I work in a world where we train the very many armed school staff in Colorado. No armed school staff wants to have to deploy their firearm and stop something. We're all about prevention. So how do we find that mm -hmm. subsection of the 0.44? An individual who has schizophrenia, and I have schizophrenia in my family, the majority of individuals who have schizophrenia are not violent, have no indication of being violent. So to have the diagnosis doesn't really tell you anything about the potential behavior of that individual. So it, that would not be the answer in terms of like, how do we find them? We do find that individuals, whether they have a mental illness or not, they do have that aspect of paranoia, not fitting in, um, great hate. I hate all women, or I hate my school because they laughed at me. That's a common thread. And sometimes that individual does have a mental illness on top of that, and sometimes they don't. That's more the identifier. Can I throw out one thing, though, George Brockler. to address this? And that is, you talk about the prevention piece. I'm going to give a shout-out to our InstaCheck system here in uh, Colorado. Explain InstaCheck. InstaCheck is when someone goes in to buy a firearm, whether it's a gun show or from a, a private seller or from uh, a gun shop, you have to fill out a specific form and you have to attest to certain things being true or false about you that might make you ineligible to buy a firearm. What are some of those things that make you ineligible in Colorado to buy a firearm? Well, if you are a felon, if you are convicted of an act of domestic violence or currently operating under a restraining order for domestic violence, if you have been adjudicated a mental defective, those aren't my words, no, that's I the law. Um, and that brings me to this point that this InstaCheck system, I did some looking around and what I found is that just from this year, from January until now, there have been statewide 318 denials for the purchase of firearms to people who have been adjudicated as mentally defective. That number struck me as much bigger than I would have ever thought. Now, you know, statewide, if you go back just to January of 2018, there have been 10,000 denials. So it's not a huge percentage, but 318 people who have been through the court system and have been adjudicated mentally defective have walked into a gun shop or gone to a gun store or, or a gun show and said, I want to acquire firearms. And we've said, no. So to some extent, the prevention piece, I think, is starting to be addressed, at least with those people who've been through the process. The part that you're talking about, that's the scary part. 
That's the part where we don't have it. We've got to rely on mental health professionals who've had contact with these people who have said, you know what, I think this person's an imminent risk to themselves or others. And that just doesn't happen that often. Let me flip the script just a little bit. I think there are some in this moment in time who would look at uh, the demographic of the most recent shooters and say, don't look for mental illness, Laura Carno. Look for white supremacists. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that we know enough about the organized white supremacists out there. It's been kind of a, a recent conversation uh, with this most recent shooting. Yeah, I think our, our notion of what terrorism is is evolved. Right. I think the thing that scares us is, let's say before Aurora, we didn't think it was going to be a kid in college with, mm-hmm. you know, medium grades and kind of fading into the background. So I think that's the the scary part. And I think that was behind my question. Is there a magic formula to find these people? Because they seem to be uh, different every time. And isn't the terrifying thought that we may not be able to develop such a screen. I, Dr. Emmy Betts, I'd love your thoughts yeah, on th- this. Yeah, thanks. So a couple of thoughts. Um, the first is I think it's really important to emphasize that individuals with any mental health conditions are more likely to be victims of violence than to perpetrate violence, to, mm-hmm. to what uh, mm-hmm. Senator Keller was saying, and in fact are most likely to perpetrate violence towards themselves through suicide. And so I think it's really important that we move away from this fear and stigmatization also really important to clarify, and this is something that I come up against in the in the ER, that adjudicated as a mental defect of that language that's in the background check, that involves a whole court process. So if you come to my ER and you are in acute psychosis, homicidality, you need to be admitted to a mental health facility for treatment or at imminent risk to yourself or others, that does not take you out of the system for buying a firearm until you it, it becomes a much bigger process through the courts. We now have as of next January, we may have the extreme risk protection orders in place where law enforcement or family could request that firearms be taken away. But I think we need to recognize that there are limitations to what the background check system can do. It's certainly important to be there. I think actually should be strengthened. But it is not the thing that's sort of going to catch folks. And that's why I think it's great we now have the programs like in schools, like Safe to Tell and other sorts of things, trying to engage communities and helping each other. But I think this finding a needle in a haystack actually sometimes takes us down potentially a false passage. I I think that 318 is not meant to give us some sense of security, although we're glad it works, but it's to highlight what you just said, which is that's 318 people who have been through the process and been adjudicated. My God, how many that have not been through that process but are still suffering from that same type of mental illness have gone in to buy a firearm? And I concede to you that the vast majority of them end up either hurting themselves or something else. But we don't want them to have firearms for that reason. I'm most concerned with this mental illness part as well as the convicted felons and domestic violence folks getting their hands on these firearms. George Brockler, I want to reflect on something that you told us in a segment that aired earlier, uh, which is that there are laws in place so that certain people don't get guns. You've explained who some of those people are. Uh, but the consequences, if they actually do get a hold of a firearm, you think, are not uh, enforced. It's not just that they're not enforced. I think that the law is deliberately set up to make them weaker and to encourage, I think, the court to see them as something other than what they are, especially in this day and age. I'll give you a couple of examples. Let's talk about juveniles. If you give a juvenile a handgun, That is a felony in our system, but it's a probation-eligible felony, and that remains true even if you know that juvenile has previously been adjudicated 
as a violent person. It's true even if you know that that juvenile is going to go out and use the handgun to commit a felony. It remains probation eligible. But this is the part that's hold on to your hats crazy. If you provide a juvenile with an AR-15, it is a misdemeanor. It is worse under the law to provide a juvenile a handgun than an AR-15. And both of those charges remain probation eligible. And we see that all the way through, I told you, 10,000 insta-check denials since January of 2018. Those are misdemeanors. Go into a gun show, go to a gun store and lie about your background to try to get a handgun. It's a misdemeanor. And it rarely ever gets prosecuted, largely because of volume and resources at the Mm -hmm. lower level. Misdemeanors get charged by police and sheriff's deputies. That means they scratch out tickets. They don't have the ability to respond to 10,000 of these across the state. And so what you see is we have laws on the books for guns, but those laws don't have any teeth in them. They don't act as a deterrent, and they certainly don't punish those people who keep testing the system and trying to find a way to get guns. I will say this, though. I've been talking about this. Senator Fields has been huge supporter of the idea of let's go back in and take a look at these and try to figure out how to make these things more effective, and that's a big deal. And Senator Fields, whose district includes the Aurora Movie Theater, which came under attack in 2012, we'll hear from her right after the break. Earlier, she said the U.S. is experiencing a gun epidemic. And she'll tell us that when you throw in hate, it becomes a deadly mix. Plus, how one Colorado Latina feels about the country right now. We recorded this conversation a day before six police officers in Philadelphia were shot and injured. A reminder that law enforcement not only responds to these events, but can be the target. You're listening to a special from Colorado Matters and CPR News. It's Colorado. It's 2019. Weed is legal. It's not that unusual to see cannabis yoga classes, guided cannabis meditations, even cannabis churches. Now, using cannabis to meditate or worship is not a new thing. Rastafarians have been using it for almost 100 years. But in this new world of legalization, what changes when we're talking about weed and religion? Find out on the latest episode of CPR's new podcast, On Something, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. People want mass shootings to stop, and yet they continue. We're grappling with why on today's show. In our performance studio, we assembled some big thinkers on guns, public policy, criminal justice, and health. Let's pick up the discussion with State Senator Rhonda Fields, an Aurora Democrat whose son was murdered. She circled back to an idea from earlier in the show about white supremacy. And when I hear that white nationalism is new phenomena, you know, I couldn't agree with that at all because it's not new. We know what happened in South Carolina when there was this shooter who went into a church where people were worshiping, and he was very intent about committing those horrible acts to people of color. We had another scenario where there was a march um, where a victim was ran over by a car. So this is not a new phenomenon. You're talking about Charlottesville. Yes, And so what we're seeing recently is an increase of hate. And people are using weapons to demonstrate their hatred towards other people. And so this is nothing new. I mean, there's a whole history around white supremacists going after people that look different than themselves. And we're seeing an escalated rhetoric attacking people that look like me. 
We have immigrants that are under attack right now. We have Mexicans that are in under attack right now. We have women in powerful positions who are under attack right now. I have been under attack just because of my position with guns. And I think what happens is we don't seem to have the tolerance to be um, accepting of people's different views. I want to bring in the voice of Alejandra Castaneda. She's a linguist in Denver, a naturalized citizen originally from Mexico. And I asked her how she's feeling after El Paso. Uh, The alleged shooter apparently wanted to kill Mexicans. The anti-immigrant rhetoric is against Mexicans in particular and Latin American immigrants. It's hard. It's hard to sleep. I worry about my child, not only because she goes to school, and that's another, you know, place where you hear about mass shootings. And I realized shootings happen every day, all day, in very different situations. But when you hear about it, that it could happen in, you know, everyday situations, like going to school or going to the movie theater or going to Walmart. And then you add to that that you are an immigrant, that you could be targeted just because of who you are or where you came from. I worry. I asked Castaneda the same question that we've been asking all of you. After the recent mass shootings, the U.S. should blank. She reframed it, saying she doesn't like to tell people what to do. So uh, this is what she wants to do. I should continue building on these values of compassion and shared humanity and inclusion that I grew up with as a child of an immigrant, that, you know, we're all human, that we should share this humanity. I should support and vote for government leaders that want to do the same, that see humanity in every person. I also think that... um, I need to get more politically involved. I'm ashamed that I did not become a citizen sooner. Okay, I've heard so far in this conversation the term rhetoric. I've heard civil discourse. To what extent are our politics right now, and perhaps the most powerful elected official in this country, the president, to what extent do you think um, he or they or it is creating the environment that we're experiencing right now. I believe that the the nation is taking its cue from uh, number 45, and I think he's activated a sense of empowerment in people that you can say whatever you want. And apparently there's very few consequences associated with hate speech. And we've seen that in some of the rallies where he's called out people that are disabled, where he's called out Mexicans as being rapists and murderers, where he's telling some women in Congress, send them back, wherever they were supposed to go back, they're Americans, but send them back, um, lock them up. And so I think there's a whipping up, there's a staring up of this division within our society, which I know makes me feel very uncomfortable. And then other people are using that to then um, paraphrase and to repeat back what they're hearing from the highest levels that's happening in our schools. Kids are starting to say, go back to Africa. And so the things that are being said at a very high level is taking place on a community level. We have kids that are afraid to go to school because they're afraid that their parents might be 
um, removed from this country or they're afraid they're going to be separated from their country and put in cages. So what we're seeing and what we're hearing, I don't think represents the, the values of what America is all about. Laura Carno? I believe in the good of people. And aside from people who have these violent tendencies, I don't think any of us are going to look at our president or other public officials and say, he said this, so I'm going to do this. A special show today grappling with how to prevent the kinds of attacks we've seen in Texas, Ohio, and in our own backyard. With perspective on criminal justice, Republican District Attorney George Brockler, who's based in Arapahoe County, gun rights activist Laura Carno, who trains teachers and other school staff who want to be armed. Mo Keller of Mental Health Colorado, emergency physician Dr. Emmy Betts, and Democratic State Senator Rhonda Fields of Aurora. Earlier, Senator Fields said America has a gun epidemic. That's what she sees when it comes to suicide, murder, and mass murder. I wanted to explore that further with Dr. Betts. Medically, do we have a gun epidemic in the United States? So we do if you look at there being increasing rates. When we think about a flu epidemic, it's that the rates of influenza are are increasing above sort of the typical levels. It's hard to define what the typical level in this country is now because it is so high. But I think the reason for calling it an epidemic, which it is, when you look at rates of gun firearm injuries and deaths, they're now higher than car crash deaths, uh, continue to rise. Not just mass shootings. Correct. And it is really important to acknowledge that mass shootings account for only 1% to 2% of all firearm deaths in this country. 60% of firearm deaths are suicides. In Colorado, it's 76% now of our firearm deaths are suicide. We need to be talking about those. But I think the, the advantage to recognizing this as an epidemic is it allows us to look at it the way we look at other public health problems. People are dying. And as Laura said, nobody wants this in their family. Nobody wants to lose a family member or a friend. Nobody wants someone to be hurt. People own firearms most often specifically to protect their families. And certainly, the I think the rhetoric of hate and fear feels higher now than it ever has before. But when you really talk to people, I think the most of us just want safe communities. We want healthy and happy families. Uh, And the loud voices on the extremes don't don't really speak for most of the people that I talk to. And I think that's where we all can really play a role in advocating for our leaders in Congress to step up and start funding this the way we fund other epidemics. My understanding is that uh, there has been a prohibition on studying gun violence as a public health issue. Does that remain true? It's basically still true. It's from a 1996 amendment that the Republican who put that in place actually has now said that he thinks it should be reversed. The NIH, uh, National National Institutes of Health, who funds uh, medically related research, is allowed to fund firearm related research. It's still a small pot relative to what else they fund. But the CDC is basically still silenced. And personally, I think that's atrocious. I'm not advocating for federal funding for political activities, but we cannot solve this problem without science. Let me say the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Right. There was a study about two years ago looking at across diseases and injury categories and deaths and then looking at the funding that those topics received. So it was everything from lung cancer to AIDS to car crashes and so forth. And when you looked at what should be expected based on the death rates, firearm violence received less than 2% of the funding it should have gotten. So you look at the money being poured into the opioid epidemic right now, there's nothing like that happening with firearms. And that's a problem. 
Laura Carno, I'm very eager to know if you think that treating firearms as a public health issue, is that a place you think Democrats and Republicans could find common ground? Yeah, so it's interesting. I know that the, the topic of our discussion has to do with firearms and, and violence. If we are looking at people who die when we, before their time, let's say, a, yeah. a very non-scientific, non-medical term, people who <laughs> die before their time, um, accidents, murders, suicide, those kind of things. I'd like to look at all of them. I think, it, I think if we look at, at things in a very non-political way, homicide by hammer, okay? Is there a different mental makeup of the guy that, that kills somebody with a hammer as opposed to a knife, as opposed to a firearm? I don't know the answer to that question, but coming from a family that um, also experienced murder, like Senator Field's family, and uh, my brother was not um, murdered with a firearm. So it biases me a little bit because I think my brother's death was as, um, I don't know the right word. It's, it's important to devastating. us. Devastating, regardless of the tool used to kill him. So I, I'm interested in, in all of the things. I think the reason that we talk about gun violence in this, you know, it's in its own special bucket is because there are political interests on both sides that want to see it one way or another. Nobody's talking about, and my brother was not killed with a hammer, I just use this as an example, <laughs> um, nobody's talking about whether or not we should sell hammers, whether we should control hammers, because there's no political interest on either side of that. So I love the, the aspect of looking at, when you look at suicide, for example, I think that suicide by any method is just a tragedy for those families. So if we're going to look at these things, I'd love to expand them to look at lots of different things. Now, if that experience, that research brings us to make some decisions about access to firearms that is different than access to hammers, for example, great, then then let's talk about that. But I, um, I, I almost hate to keep it to that one narrow area when we're talking about people who've died too soon when they shouldn't have. Let me push back just a bit, sure. because I think there are people who'd say, uh, of the hammer example, uh, that in Dayton, for instance, the gunman fired dozens of rounds, killing nine people and injuring 27 within 30 seconds uh, before police intervened, and that that might have looked very different with a hammer. Uh, why don't I bring in this voice? I want to hear from a man who's a registered Republican. My name is Dave Warwick. I'm from Highlands Ranch, Colorado, and after the most recent rounds of mass shootings and killings, I believe that America should push for stronger gun safety regulations and legislation, specifically regarding banning assault weapons for civilians. I don't feel like assault-style weapons or any weapon with high-capacity ammunition capabilities should be in the hands of civilians. They're just designed for killing people, basically. And I think that, you know, although nothing is totally going to prevent gun violence or violence or murders in our country, it certainly would help. And I don't really feel like that is a, an infringement on the Second Amendment. I think, you know, like any freedom we have, like, for, example, for instance, the freedom of speech, everything has limitations. Senator Rhonda Fields, what conversations have you had? Democrats hold a majority in both houses in this state and uh, the governor's seat. Uh, what conversations have you had post El Paso, post Gilroy, post Dayton about legislation that you might bring? 
You know, we have not had that conversation yet because uh, the state of Colorado is far ahead of what's taking place across the nation. We already have universal background checks, which means if you try to purchase a firearm, sales, private, or um, brand new, we're going to assess that and determine if you're eligible to have a firearm. So we've done that. We have restricted the capacity of a, a magazine. So what happened in Dayton, I understand that the shooter had a magazine that had 200 bullets in it. And when I look at the mass shootings that have taken place across the nation, that is one thing that we do find that they have in common. When you think about what happened in Las Vegas, people were at a concert. This guy was on whatever floor, 30th floor, and he was shooting down people. And that wasn't based on some pistol or a hammer. He had manipulated this equipment with this bump stock that was able to fire these rapid bullets. And that's what we had in Dayton, too. That's what we had in the Aurora Theater shooting. And so when you think about that kind of equipment, that gun, that assault rifle, the only purpose to have that, in my view, is for someone to injure as many people as they can in a short period of time. You don't need that kind of weapon to go hunting. I understand that some people do it for shooting practice or whatever, but I don't think that they belong in our communities. I believe that there are weapons of war, and you can track that type of weapon to the mass shootings that we've seen in the last 10 years. So are you saying that there ought to be a ban on assault-style weapons? That needs to happen on the federal level. And yet you, you hold Colorado as an example, but we had the STEM shooting. We had the purchase of a gun by that young woman right. who came into the state around the anniversary right. of Columbine. Let me say again, that was a situation that wound up being right. about suicide as opposed to externalized right. violence. And, you know, I'm concerned about that because we're having now in our schools these drills that are traumatizing kids. We're having these active shooting drills where we're teaching our kids to be prepared for an active shooter, that someone might come into your school and take your life away, which I'm not quite sure if that is the right thing to be doing as it relates to teaching our kids. I think we have to start looking upstream in reference to what we can do to prevent those kinds of situations from ever happening. But you can't point to any specific policy that's being talked about now? No, I, I think that some things are brewing. We don't have anything to announce at this point, but I think there's opportunities for us to do something to keep growing and building on the progress that we've already established. Democratic State Senator Rhonda Fields of Aurora. Our roundtable continues in a moment with the idea of contagion. Do shootings and the coverage that follows beget more shootings? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the wake of the El Paso, Texas shooting, Latinos everywhere are feeling more exposed. I'm CPR News morning reporter Natalia Navarro. If you're a member of Colorado's Latino community, I want to hear from you. Do you feel safe where you live? How are you feeling about the political discourse on our communities? Text tell CPR one word to 555-888 to let me know. That's tell CPR to 555-888. 
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to our discussion about mass murder, school shootings, everyday violence, and suicide. My guests are Republican District Attorney George Brockler, based in Arapahoe County, Mo Keller of Mental Health Colorado, emergency physician Dr. Emmy Betts, plus Democratic State Senator Rhonda Fields of Aurora, and gun rights activist Laura Carno of Elizabeth, Colorado. With kids going back to school, I asked Carno to tell me more about her firearms training program called FASTER. We conduct training. It's very advanced training for the school staffers who are already authorized in their school. So I don't go out and say, hey, teachers, let me teach you some stuff so that you can go do something in your school. It's really kind of the reverse. School districts make a decision and Um, It's not surprising that it's mostly rural school districts because they're so far from law enforcement. They make a decision to say, we we need to have armed staff. We're we're our own first responders. And once that decision's made, they come to you and what do you help them with? Yeah, once that decision's made, they have to get training and they can go anywhere for their training. They come to us because we raise private money so that they can afford the tuition. So 80% of the schools come through tuition free. We also think we're offering a superior product. We have Um, active duty law enforcement trainers who are conducting this training. And we conduct it at a law enforcement training center. The law enforcement sees them as extensions of themselves. If, If they can't be there in time, they hope to train the people who can save lives. On this dimension of of schools and school shootings, I'd like to play this. My name is Maya Holmes, and I'm a middle school science teacher in Denver, Colorado. Last week, when I was preparing to go back to school for teacher training, I found myself anxious and scared. I realized because I teach in a school, and because I teach in a school that is predominantly Latinx, that me and my students are a target. Not only do I have to plan lessons about biology and chemistry and the Earth's rotation, but I also have to teach and practice how to do lockdowns with my students to keep them safe if there's ever an active shooter in our school. Because I care for my students more than anything, I will do what it takes to protect them if they are ever in harm's way. But this is not my job as an educator. My job is to teach and to mentor and to love, not to have to use my body to block bullets. What I hear Maya saying is, you expect me to put my body between bullets and children. And when we hear over and over um, from folks who are uncomfortable with this policy, they say, teachers aren't the right people to carry a firearm to defend kids. They don't have the right mindset. And I say, every teacher I talk to would die for their children. And they, and they call them my kids, my children. Maya is not interested in being an armed staff member, and she would be most school staff members aren't interested in doing it, and that's fine. Maya happens to be in a big school district that has a lot of armed security. Not every school district has that benefit. Um, as I said, not a surprise that so many rural schools have been the, um, the adopters of armed staff policies because they have no other choice. George Brockler. Yeah, I just well, weird coincidence that we're at this point of the discussion. Uh, this morning, I'm sitting at our kitchen counter in Douglas County, where I have four kids, all in public school, and I'm sitting next to my. Are they back in school now? All well, yeah. In fact, as of today, my youngest just started fourth grade. But I'm sitting next to my second youngest, who is a brand new sixth grader, started school last week, 
And we, as we always do, sit down and talk about the day before. And I asked him to tell me about uh, classes. And he starts going through and he gets to science. I said, what are you learning in science? He said, nothing. I said, what do you mean nothing? You've learned nothing in science. He goes, well, yesterday was lockdown drill day in science class. And I said, hmm, what did you do in lockdown drill day? And he said, we got up out of our desks and we curled up in balls by the wall and they turned off the lights and locked the door and said that we would just hope that whatever it was that was going on would pass by the room. And I could see it affected him. And I, and I asked him, I said, how does that make you feel? And he said, shrugged, you know, because that's what boys do when they're first answering something is to shrug. And I said, well, how did it make you feel? And he said, um, scared, made me feel scared. And I said, could you tell how your classmates felt? And he's at a brand new school where he doesn't know anybody. And he said, they look scared too. And I said, how long of the class did it take for you guys to go through this drill and have this conversation? And he said, the whole class we spent doing that. That is his memory so far that sticks out from science class and middle school so far. In no way do I think that changes the discussion that we're having to one of, well, because my son has gone through that, we now need to go towards, and I just have a disagreement about banning weapons and all these other things. But as a parent, not as a prosecutor, I do see what Senator Fields talks about, and I do feel that in my home. And he is one of four kids that have had to go through that. It's just now at an age where he's on the cusp being 12, where these are things that will stick with him forever. They're not things that you'll forget about. I don't remember anything about first grade. He'll remember this about sixth grade. You know, I want to just interject here the idea of contagion. Okay, so earlier in the conversation, we talked about uh, whether there's an epidemic of gun violence. I want, to wor- I want to use another health term, contagion. So research from Arizona State University finds that school shootings, other shootings with four or more deaths spread like a contagion. Each shooting tends to spark more shootings. And I want to ask a bit of a meta question. Here we are, you know, broadcasting to the state of Colorado, talking about mass violence. Uh, and maybe, Dr. Betts, you can reflect on this. Do shootings beget more shootings? And I ask, uh, in part, are the news media, do you think, part of the issue? So I do think the media is part of the issue for a lot of things. No offense to the media. But, uh, (laughs) you know, and I think we've clearly seen a progression in how the media talks about shootings in terms of not naming the killers and, and so forth. And we certainly know within suicide, the way that we talk about suicide is important to try to prevent the sort of contagion or of copycat shootings. Clearly, it's important that we have these conversations because we do need to be moving forward and we can't accept this level of violence. At the same time, I keep coming back to that we are having this conversation about the thing that scares us all that is actually still this tiny, tiny blip in terms of what is causing the the injuries and deaths. And so is it as exciting to talk about daily violence? No, probably, right? Because it's not it's not the big event that everyone's talking about. But we need to be able to think about the risks of these these kinds of events. And if I could, I would add on that what we were talking about before is we think about back to school time. And I'm a parent in Denver Public Schools, so I'm lucky the police academy is across the street. So it's different than rural areas, certainly. And I am horrified that my elementary school kids go through these drills and hopefully don't remember it yet. But I would encourage all of us as parents and as leaders to remember that 
our kids are far more likely to kill themselves than be killed in school, including by firearm. And so to all the firearm owners out there, please make sure your guns are locked up, even with the teenagers in the home, because that is what you actually should should be on the lookout more for than the, than the sort of boogeyman who's about to run in the school. Should doctors ask pediatricians or family docs, should they ask, is there a gun in the home? I would flip that. I would argue that physicians and other healthcare providers should be providing education around safe storage and reinforcing those messages. I don't think they always have to ask, if that makes sense. So there are times when it's important to me as a physician to know, do you have access to a firearm if, if you tell me you're suicidal? If you're a pediatrician doing routine visits, I would argue you should give the same guidance to everybody. And maybe you don't need to run through the battery of, of what's in the home. Because the thing is, even if that kid doesn't have a weapon in the home, the neighbor might or the relatives might. And so the parents, I would argue every parent should be getting the information about locked storage and making sure that the kids don't have access to guns. Absolutely, though, healthcare providers should be involved in these conversations. And we should be involved in a way that is respectful and non-judgmental in the same way that we, we tackle lots of difficult subjects. Mo Keller. Well, um, I wanted to go back a little bit when you were talking about public policy at the when it comes to the lack of resources in communities around individuals who are in a crisis, they wind up in the emergency room. The emergency rooms, when they do release them, they're released to the street. We have watched with dismay over the last 10 years more and more hospitals giving up their psychiatric units because they're not profitable. They just don't make money on them. And they're honest about it. They tell you that. And so we now have less hospitals that are designated to be able to hold an individual in that ward than uh, we've ever had in, in years past. And so this is part of the policy issue that I know we're looking at with the Governor's Behavioral Health Task Force that's going on right now. This and is uh, maybe going to recommend some legislation in right. the next session. No, it definitely will recommend legislation of some sort. Next session and probably the session after because the committee goes on for quite some time. Um, this would be one of them, and that is besides trying to find more actual residential facilities for individuals in crisis to be able to go to, also uh, on the on the youth angle to be able to get more resources into community to help parents uh, who are coping with their children actually who might be um, experiencing difficulties. Uh, parents are, are we get calls all the time are just craving information on, and supports and how can I help my youngster uh, and we fail them and then the youngster can go in a direction we don't want them to go in. We've talked about mass shootings and suicides as different dimensions of, of violence but I wonder if we should connect them. In other words, a lot of these mass shooters don't have exit plans. Is it possible that these really are just suicides with homicidal repercussions? So it's a, it's a really good point. And I think um, there's not 100% overlap. There certainly is a big overlap. And I think you need to throw domestic violence in there as well, that very often it's a male killing a former partner, current partner, and whoever else happens to be there. So I think some of how do we identify the folks who are at risk, some of it is thinking about these other categories of people who are at risk of causing harm to either themselves or others. So when we know that there's domestic violence going on, when we know someone has suicide risk factors, how do we think about what thoughts that person might be having towards hurting another another person? And I think the mass shooter who is the random person who just like wanders into a school knowing no one and kills people, like that is rare, 
relative to the other kinds of situations. Most often, it's someone who has a connection to at least one of the victims. And so it's hard. It's messy. These issues all overlap. Um, that's why it's important that we we look at these different patterns and what are the risk factors and, and understand what are the approaches that work in different places, what works for prevention of either mass violence or suicides or both in rural Colorado might be really different than Denver. And that's okay. And we should be trying out both and studying both. I also think back to your plea in the very beginning, Laura Carno, which is nobody wants right. what's happening. And it, can that be the bridge to finding meaningful policy solutions? That's why we're all here, and, and that's why I opened with that. But this doesn't feel like Congress. This has been so kind, this conversation. <laughs> because I think that we all in this room believe one another, even though we might sit on a different side of the aisle, that we all want the killing to stop. That's such an interesting point. There's a level of trust, occurs to me, that has to exist for one side and the other side to both maybe make a compromise. I, I think it's so true, and I think Dr. it's Benz. it's a little scary, and it's hard. I mean, I think it sometimes feels much easier to be able to just blame another side. You know, I will say personally, over the last five years, the collaborative work we've been doing with firearm ranges and retailers in the state, it took a lot of trust on both sides at the beginning, and it has been the, the most wonderful thing that we have done, and to see what's coming of it. And Literature, I, for instance, that yeah, is in gun shops. Exactly. Or, and just new ways of thinking and understanding each other and finding common ground. And I am not in public office, but I imagine it's really hard to build up that kind of trust when it's you're sort of under constant scrutiny from, yes. I, I think it's, I, I have some empathy and I appreciate everyone's public service. That, that's a big <laughs> difference because um, neither of us have um, constituents that are telling us to vote a certain way. Neither of us are sitting on the side of an aisle. A but you know who is? Side of an, of an aisle. Rhonda Fields. <laughs> you want to wrap this up by reflecting yeah, on what you've heard? Um, I think for me is that the pain is real. And what I've learned is every time there is a shooting, um, there is a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. And that ripple effect doesn't just impact the family. You know, it in impacts the community. It impacts the, the school. It impacts impacts the church, it impacts the business. And so we need to make sure that we're providing people with the, the counseling and the support they need after the shooting because the pain is real. Thanks to all of you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah, Thanks. it was great. Rhonda Fields is a Democratic state senator from Aurora. Laura Carno is a Republican activist and author who leads FASTER, which trains armed school staffers. Emergency physician Dr. Emmy Betts co-founded the Colorado Firearms Safety Coalition. Mo Keller is director of advocacy for Mental Health Colorado. And George Brockler is the Republican district attorney for the 18th Judicial District. Before we go, here's how to contact Colorado Crisis Services if you're struggling with a mental health issue. Text TALK to 38255. That's TALK to 38255. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Colorado Matters.